0: So good morning again, Church. Uh, I thought for the message this morning, I'd take the camera and sit outside in my backyard a little bit. Uh, if only this were true. In fact, for a message that's supposed to be about forgiveness, I expect many of you wouldn't forgive me at, at all if that were the case. We have been working these past few weeks uh, through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we come this morning to to an interesting teaching on forgiveness. And uh, I was thinking about where we would be this time of year if it were not for all of these extraordinary measures. As hard as it is to believe, we are only just a matter of days away from the celebration of the Easter season. The Easter week begins a week from today with Palm Sunday and with the celebrations of Holy Week and, and all of the gatherings that would normally punctuate that time of year. It's a time to be together, family and friends and loved ones we gather around a table. We give thanks. We reflect on the good gifts that God has given us. But for some people, I think Easter is another one of those holidays that we kind of have mixed feelings about. It comes with all of the obligations to see people, some of whom we love and some of whom maybe we're not on the best of terms with. And maybe it gives a whole new definition to the words that are in Psalm 23. If if you've ever prayed these words before you walked into a dinner gathering on Easter weekend, Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Now, you may not call the people that you would spend Easter with your enemies, but there's a new word, kind of a clever word that we've used to describe people that we want to be around Uh, but we have these mixed feelings about, or even the people we don't want to be around, but we're compelled to be there. The word, a new one, is kind of an oxymoron, popular in our culture. It it consists of two words blended together, a friend and an enemy, a, a frenemy. And I wonder, just before we come to the text, if you have any frenemies, It was a story that was told by a pastor who was preaching on this text on forgiveness, and he asked everyone in his congregation to stand if they felt they were willing to take that step and forgive their enemies. As he did so, he noticed that there was one man in his congregation who absolutely refused to budge, and he called him out. He said, Mr. Jones, why is it that you're not willing to forgive your enemies? And Mr. Jones responded, I don't have any enemies to forgive the pastor looked puzzled for a minute, thought, that's weird. You mean to tell me, Mr. Jones, you've lived your whole life without having a single enemy? And he responded, the pastor, I'm 95 years old. I don't have any more enemies to forgive because I've lived all of those scumbags. Can you say scumbag in church? Maybe you can say it on a live stream. One of the things I remember reading in a biography of President Richard Nixon was that he actually kept in his office a list of his enemies, a list of his political opponents and the people he didn't like. And when a member of the White House Council was deposed, he explained the purpose of the list. This is what he said. He said, how can we maximize the fact of our incumbency? in dealing with persons known to be active in their opposition to our administration, stated more bluntly, how can we use all the power of the federal government to screw over our enemies? At one point, there were over 500 names on Nixon's enemy list. One of the curious names that was there was the actor Paul Newman. I remember him being interviewed saying that, that making Nixon's list was one of the greatest accomplishments in his life. I guess, I guess Newman didn't like Richard Nixon that much either. Now, you may not have a list quite like Nixon's, but I bet that you have a mental list of the people who've wronged you of the people that you don't like, of the people you just flat out can't stand to be around, of people that you avoid, of, of people that you talk to in a disparaging way, of uh, people who who you know just wouldn't care less if something bad happened to you, and and honestly, you wouldn't care that much either if something bad were to happen to them. Keep all of that in the background, because when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, realize what Jesus is trying to do is to form a community of people who will follow in his way way of life. And and the most important characteristic he wants to instill in them is this ethic of loving relationships. Jesus is intent that he's going to confront anything at all in his kingdom that would threaten those relationships. In a sense, he's creating a new standard. And so at the end of Matthew in chapter 5, He says something that is really, really far reaching. And in fact, I think this may be one of the most radical things that he ever said. In fact, that anyone has ever said, but not only did Jesus say it, this is something that Jesus lived out. So here's what he said. If you want to follow along, we're in Matthew, we're in chapter five and verse 43. This is Jesus speaking. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of our Father in heaven. Now, not only is that an incredible statement, but it's probably one of the most ignored and disregarded things that Jesus commanded his followers to do. I mean, we don't take this one seriously, do we? He's kidding, right? I mean, how many of us honestly can say that we have loved our enemies? Right here, for the first time, In Matthew, in chapter 5, we meet the one word that sums up the entirety of Jesus' message. The word love. And here, love is defined in the most uncompromising of terms as the love of our enemies. I mean, had Jesus only told us to love our neighbor or our family or our friends or, or the people that we like, we might have misunderstood what he meant by love but he leaves no doubt as to its meaning. Let me give you a little bit of background, and I'll invite you to, if you have your notes, we send out notes as a PDF form on Friday. If, uh, if you didn't get those, make sure that we have your email address because we send out material through the course of the week and updates and, and material that might help you get through uh, uh, the Sunday morning and material for your kids and all of that. So you can send an email, and we'll make sure you get that. But here's a bit of background. As these words came out of Jesus' mouth, the people who heard them would have known exactly whom he was referring to. I mean, for 500 years now, Israel had lived under the oppression of Rome. Most of them had known persecution because of their faith and freedom and peace. And these things we take for granted Even today, as we're having these little encroachments onto our freedom, you can't leave your house except to go for groceries. Freedom and peace were things they couldn't even begin to imagine. So when Jesus talked about enemies, it was absolutely clear to them who he meant. It was Rome. So Jesus says, this is reading on in verse 38, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one to them as well. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two with them. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, here's the background. I mean, for Jesus' followers, it wouldn't be at all unusual for a Roman soldier to take out their frustration on them At any time, a a Roman soldier could backhand a Jew if they were having a bad day or feeling frustrated. At any time, they could take from you something they wanted without asking, without any good reason, because they owned you, and they felt like they owned everything. And if they like your shirt, they could make you take it off and hand it over. If they wanted your sandals, same deal, take them off, give them up. And the third thing Jesus refers to is when a Roman soldier could force you to carry their bags. And by Roman law, you had to carry their luggage for up to a mile on command. And at any moment, no matter what you were doing, a Roman soldier could stop you in your tracks and command you to do it, and you had to obey. Imagine being under that kind of oppression your whole life. And then Jesus comes along and says this, love your enemies, love these soldiers, love Rome. And a lot of people must have thought, Jesus, it's impossible. I mean, you're asking us to become doormats. It's cowardly. It's unjust. Are you saying a Roman guard comes up to us, gives us the backhand and the kingdom response is to say, listen, take another shot if you need to. Put one right here. I mean, go ahead, get it out. A a soldier comes up to you. Would you be able to say, please, Take my jacket. Take my scarf, too. They go great together. I picked them out as an ensemble. If that same Roman soldier threw his bags on your back to carry them for a mile, the response Jesus is calling for is, why don't you let me carry your things all the way home? You look tired. It would be my honor. You see, for Jesus, there was nothing weak or cowardly about any of that. It, it required boldness. It required courage. Now here we are, 2,000 years later, reading this command from Jesus. And as you read it, and as you hear those words, I think the inner wrestling we deal with has has to acknowledge who it is that comes to mind when you hear him say, love your enemies. I mean, it's easy these days to our enemies, something so microscopically small, a, a picture of a COVID virus, but, but there's no malintent there. Who are your enemies? Maybe it's someone in your family, especially these days when, when our social relationships are stretched so thin, and it reminds you every time you get together that, that even over Skype, things are still hard, and after all these years, nothing has changed. Maybe it's somebody who you vowed to love, and they vowed to love you back until death do you part, and they didn't honor that vow, and they walked away. Maybe it's a business partner partner or a coworker, and now with businesses under such strain, it's at the breaking point. Maybe it's the person sitting right next to you. Don't look. <laughs> I said, don't look. See, it's easy to get hurt. And to get bruised by people in this world. Hardly anyone will go through life without collecting a few people who wouldn't care a whit if something bad happened to them. And so Jesus tells his disciples, he says, my command is simply this. I want you to love other people the way I have loved you. You see... When Jesus was saying this to his group of disciples, I'm sure there were a bunch of them there who really weren't that fond of each other. They were jockeying for Jesus' attention. They were jockeying for position and favor. There was competitiveness going on in that circle of 12 men. And, And Jesus goes on to say, John 13, that the whole world will know you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. It's not going to be how many miracles you perform, how great a preacher you are, but how well you love each other. Later on, the Apostle Paul would say the same thing in his command in Galatians 5, 6. He says, in the end, the only thing that counts is faith, faith expressing itself through love. Love. you and I know there's a lot of things written in the Bible, lots of commands, lots of things that feel like do's and don'ts, but none of them matter without love. Without love, Paul says, you have nothing. And the early church took that quite seriously, and, and here's one of the signs. Plagues, plagues or pandemics, as we like to call them, were quite frequent in the ancient world. I think for us, we post-Enlightenment people, we've grown used to the idea that if something happens, there's probably a pill for that. But it wasn't that case for most of history. Plague was normal. Disease was normal. Dying was normal. And it happened on a scale that makes COVID-19 look like a speck of sand on the beach. We've sort of been cosseted against that reality. But for much of history, people just understood that that was part of the season of life in the world. When a plague struck, when it struck in the second or third or fourth centuries, Christians took it as a call to action, as a call to look out for other people. While the rich and respectable citizens and the pagan doctors fled to their country estates in the hills It was the Christians who stayed and nursed people. Historians say this is one of the primary reasons that the Christian church grew so rapidly. People were stirred and motivated and inspired to see just how much these Christ followers loved each other and loved those whom they might have had nothing to do with. They'd never seen anything like it. That's why I think this season in the life of our world, this season as challenging and filled with anxiety as it is, is going to be a defining moment in the life of the church. And it's not going to be our fancy buildings or our five-star preachers that will carry the day. It will be those communities that learn what it means to courageously and compassionately find ways to love one another to love their communities, to love their neighbors, to love even their adversaries. You see, these words in Matthew 5, they're, they're not just radical, they're powerful. And they have the capacity to transform lives and relationships and entire communities. Now, listen, I'm not suggesting that you drop everything and and go running over to the hospital and and break all the etiquette of social isolations and social isolation and distancing that 's so important right now, but you know how important it is to be checking in regularly with those in your life and those in your neighborhood just to make sure they 're okay and we 've been doing that kind of for the past couple of weeks and figuring it out and how to use social media and technology and that 's great because. We've had a chance to do it while the training wheels are still on. But there's a good possibility that the training wheels are about to come off. Now's the time, church. Now's the time to stand tall. And for those of you who are hard at work on the front lines, know with every fiber of our being that we are upholding you daily in our prayers and praying for protection and safety and wisdom, and rest, and the knowledge that what you do in these days matters, and it matters for all eternity. I want to talk just a little bit about the key word in the commandment. Jesus commands us to love and and maybe that word loses traction because we try and get too much mileage out of it in the English language. We use it for lots of different things. And because we use it that way, it feels like it's unclear and and it's easily misunderstood. I say I love chicken wings and I'm using it to express a food preference. I say I love coffee and and how it wakes me up in the morning and And I'm using the same word to describe coffee in the way that it makes me feel and how I experience it that I use to say that I love my family and I love my kids and I love my wife. And that's not just about emotion. That's also about loyalty and affection and commitment. We have this one word that that has such a large umbrella of things that it's meant to capture. Mostly when we use the word love, uh, it refers to some sort of feeling or an emotion. I want to tell you, and it's so important that that we get clear on this, that Jesus means something very different when he tells us to love our enemies. Some of you know this background, but the word Jesus used here quite intentionally is the Greek word agape. Agape, quite simply, is the love of God at work in a human life. It's loving someone not because you like them, not because you prefer them, not because they appeal to you. It's loving them simply because we know that God loves them too. And at the most basic level, it means we love the person who does something evil to us, although maybe we hate the evil thing that they did. In that sense, it's a love without conditions. It's agape. I mean, Jesus isn't asking us to have warm, fuzzy feelings for the people who hate us, but he is asking us to think of them in a different kind of way. Why? Because in God's kingdom, that person, however much they may bother us, is still beloved. In God's kingdom, they are still a human being created in the image of God. They may not be perfect, may be far from it, but they still have the capacity to reflect God's image. Jesus would go on to say, if you love those only who love you, what reward will you get for that? It's easy to be good to someone who's good to you. That's just human nature. The problem is we love people who are part of our own little kingdom, but we find it harder to love people who are in competing kingdoms. For example, I want you to imagine that this were a normal day in the spring. I want you to imagine yourself walking into the sanctuary at MCBC, and as you walk into the room, you probably gave a warm welcome or a greeting or a hug to somebody that you knew, knowing that they would return the welcome and the warmth, because that's just how we operate. But there's something about a person who's courageous enough to step outside of their comfort zone, to step across a line, to perform some act of concrete goodness and generosity and kindness. Jesus says people are never more like God than they are in that moment. There's something about love, about choosing to love someone regardless of who they are and what they've done for you or what they've done to you. And Jesus illustrates that kind of love by comparing this behavior to the way that creation itself works. He points to nature. He says, Look at the sun and the rain. God causes the sun to rise on evil and on good. He sends the rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Now, what does he mean? What's he trying to say here? Maybe you've walked around your neighborhood enjoying some time outdoors. I hope you're doing that these days. And you're looking at people's gardens, and you're imagining what they're like in the freshness of spring. You know that you can't point to a beautiful, lush garden and say, well, that person must be spiritually mature, close to God, a, a real friend of God, and you can't look in another direction and see a crunchy, yellowed up lawn and, and dried-up flower beds and say, "Well, that person must be an enemy of God; they're horrible. Just look at their garden. You can tell by their garden. You actually can't tell anything about a person a person's character just by looking at their garden. Thank goodness. <laughs> Jesus is saying that the gardener who's honest and upright, they get the same weather, the same rain, the same sun as the gardener who's dishonest, as the one who lies and the one who cheats. There's just something in creation. And that's something that reveals a key element of the nature and the character of God himself. And here's what it is. God doesn't reserve good things just for good people, God is generous, God is gracious, God is compassionate. If you love your enemies despite the way they treat you or the way they feel about you, and if you love them when they too are displaying the characteristics of God's kingdom, this upside-down, inside-out kingdom, Jesus' influence in the world, then you've really understood something about the nature and the character of God. And then thankfully, in God's word, we're given the epilogue. We're given the promise that, yeah, at some point in the future, God makes all things right, that there is an accountability. But for now, in this moment, it's just a moment of pure grace and generosity, no matter how people behave towards you. How much we need that right now? In the face of of hoarding and adversity, this is a moment of pure grace and generosity. In the end, Jesus draws this one powerful conclusion. He says, if this is what God is like, then what must the people of his kingdom be like? I can't think of many people who express that more articulately than Martin Luther King. I mean, there was no doubt that he knew suffering. He, He knew what it meant to endure persecution. One of his most moving sermons, he titled it, Loving Your Enemies. In fact, it's a message that he wrote from a jail cell in Georgia. He talks about the way that hate multiplies hate in this descending spiral of violence. And it's just as injurious to the person who hates as to the victim. But love, love, he writes, is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of our enemies by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of, of enmity, we get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and it tears down. But by its very nature, love creates and it builds up. Love transforms, it does it with redemptive power. Love has the power to transform a person and a relationship and a community. Martin Luther King had a lot of enemies. You know who had more? Jesus himself. In Peter's letter, Peter wrote this to the church. He said, When they hurled their insults at Jesus, 1 Peter 2 23, when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself who judges, to him who judges justly, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to them and live for righteousness, for it is by his wounds that you have been healed. Jesus was on the cross turning enemies into friends. It was heaven's supreme gesture of sacrificial love. The command to love your enemy is a command to begin setting your mind on God's kingdom and not just on the things of the earth. Let me say this, though. I know that for some of you, the pain, the hurt, the enmity enmity just goes so deep. And if that's you... I know it will take some time. Be assured, Jesus knows the pain you feel, knows the isolation of being in a relationship or a situation where you feel powerless. His grace is available to you. The command to love your enemy is a command to find your hope and your peace in God, to find his great reward in your life, as your motivation, not the way that people treat you. Loving your enemy doesn't earn you rewards in God's kingdom. Treasuring and savoring the blessings of God's kingdom is what empowers you to love the people you don't like, the ones who don't like you. If you find that hard, maybe remember this. At one time, we were all on God's enemy list. And at the cross, we all moved onto his friend list. And when we realize the price that was paid, it's pretty hard to hold a grudge. Now go and love someone. Let me pray for us as we do. Heavenly Father, would you stir us up and fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit, develop in us the capacity to forgive. For some of us, we realize, Lord, that that's going to require the boldness of taking the first step. It's one thing, Lord, for us to wait to be forgiven. It's another to stretch out the olive branch, and and it takes courage, and we pray that courage comes from you. And then, Heavenly Father, we pray, too, that, that you would allow us to look inward and see not only our faults and failings as a starting point, but the grace we've received as the end point. And, God, that that would motivate us in our response. And finally, in prayer, we want to unleash the great power that has the ability to shape the future of our lives and the future of our world. We want to pray, God, for the ability to love in the way that Jesus loved to respond in these uncertain and unsettling times. We pray for your church, your church stretched widely around the world across this nation, that as she stands tall and and with a ferocity rooted in love and grounded in compassion, that she would bring under her umbrella with compassion and with faithfulness all those who need hope and help in these days. To that great end, Lord, we give ourselves, we give our lives, we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.